one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. This episode is all about research into the peppered moth, the famous example of an organism showing a rapid change in response to a shifting environment. In this show, we'll look back over 150 years of research into this beast, and then we'll hear about some of the modern studies into its genetics. I'm Jeff Marsh. People noticed in the late 19th century something which later came to be called industrial melanism, the increasing frequency of dark forms of lots of relatively pale moths in industrialised parts of the country, roughly between 1850 and 1900. There were hundreds of moths which exhibited a degree of this industrial melanism, but the peppered moth, Biston betularia, was a particularly diagrammatic example, exhibiting bold differences between the two forms. Today, the neat version of the story, where selective predation by birds led to a drastic change in colour more frequencies, is supported by the bulk of the evidence. But that wasn't always the leading hypothesis, and there are a number of other factors which we must still take into account. Lawrence Cook, a retired population geneticist from the Faculty of Life Sciences in the University of Manchester, has written a review on this topic, and I gave him a call for a potted history. I would say the first people to record this change were amateur entomologists. The reasons why this surprising change in many species at the same time, the reasons why that occurred, were simply not known. And to the extent that it was discussed in the amateur journals, uh, it was associations that were mentioned in the first place, like that it occurred in industrial areas. But industrial areas were also northern, by and large. Uh, They tended to be cloudy, they tended to be humid. They were polluted, and all of these factors were considered as as possible causative agents, along with the idea of protection. But that was not the dominant idea um, to begin with. The scientific interest in uh, industrial melanism really started with William Bateson, secretary of the Royal Society Evolution Committee in 1900, and he organized the amateur entomologists to get their data together, and it was published between 1900 and 1906, so that it was available you know, to the scientific community. About the same time, it was shown that the black form, which was the one that had increased most dramatically in the peppered moth, um, was a Mendelian dominant. And that was true of many of the moths which had black forms. And of these, the peppered moth was the most dramatic in that the melanic form is very distinct from the typical form and it had increased in frequency very fast. And so the story that many of the people listening to this may have heard, and I certainly have, is that industrial melanism and the the changes in the frequency were down to this selective predation. How did we come to that conclusion? Well, first of all, there was speculation. There was a man called J.W. Tutt who first 
of all, gathered together all the suggestions as to why Melanism should occur and didn't really come down in favour of one of them. But then later on, he published, in the early part of the 20th century, statements uh, arguing that uh, there was selective predation by birds because the dark forms were camouflaged against dark backgrounds, which is the story we have now. But uh, certainly at the time, there were other contemporaries who didn't agree with this at all. They hadn't seen birds eating the moth. They realized that there were anomalies. There were dark individuals in, in uh, areas outside of industrial centers at quite high frequencies. So it wasn't an entirely generally agreed position. The next major thing that happened was Haldane estimating the amount of selection you would need in order to obtain the change in morph frequency that had occurred. And he published a paper in 1919 where he said that it would be some tens of percent difference, 20%, 30%, 50% difference in, in uh, fitness between the two forms, the dark form and the pale form, in order to account for the change that had occurred over a period of about um, 30 to 50 generations. Now, the significance of that was, first of all, that this was about the time we started getting population genetics, started getting a quantitative understanding of changes, and secondly, that this was a far, far greater level of selection than anybody had ever anticipated in, in terms of evolutionary change. Moving on a little bit more, early 30s to 1940, a framework for population genetics was worked out. And um, it was pointed out that the elementary process of evolution is change in gene frequency. And that was something that people perhaps understood intuitively, but had not actually been written down explicitly until about that time. But it wasn't until 1950 till Kettlewell came along, that people actually demonstrated that birds did eat these moths and that they could exercise um, selective predation. So that really came along 75 years after the phenomenon was first noted. And that seems to have been the rough hypothesis that we've sort of stuck with. Where is the modern research into the peppered moth going? Well, uh, I'd like to just throw in another sort of maverick piece here, which is a, a gentleman called E.B. Ford, who um, in the period about 1935-1945 was very interested in why there were so many dominant new mutants. The discussions that had gone on at, at that time suggested that new mutations ought to be intermediate in expression. But he also was quite influential um, at this time in discussing, among other things, the peppered moth, um, in the belief that if there had been recurrent dark mutants, then there might, over a long period of time in the past, have been selection for dominance because uh, they lived in environments which were not the ones that we have now. And if that were the case, there would be selection for recessiveness of any deleterious effects that the mutants might have, so that you could have evolution of heterozygote advantage. Now, he advocated very strongly that these kind of phenomena we saw, where there were polymorphisms for distinct phenotypes, um, were associated with heterozygous advantage. So that, when Kettlewell came along, who was supported by Ford, worked in Ford's lab, he carried out experiments and made observations 
uh, along with Nico Tinbergen on bird predation, and he showed that uh, there could be powerful selection by birds on the two forms, favouring the dark ones in dark areas and the pale ones in, in, in unpolluted areas, um, which, would, uh, which would lead to a rapid change in frequency. And consequently, the, the textbook account, which is the one you mentioned, um, lighted on this because it's a very tidy story. However, the idea of heterozygote advantage and the need also to explain anomalous geographical patterns was still with us and still in the literature to an extent, so that by the 60s or so, people said, OK, we've got a clear idea here that the most powerful process that's operating is selective predation by birds, but there may be non-visual fitness differences as well for these various kinds of reasons, which uh, will help to explain the fact that we sometimes get surprisingly high frequencies of dark forms in areas with pale backgrounds. And the other factor is that um, we had an idea what the uh, migration distances were, which would spread if you had a high frequency in one place, it would spread that frequency outwards by migration as opposed simply to direct selection. But if the migration rates were very much higher, another order of magnitude higher, for example, they perhaps would explain um, anomalies which you might otherwise have to explain by non-visual fitness differences. Then we come to deindustrialization, clean air, and um, there's been a dramatic drop from 95% to 5% in Manchester and Leeds over the last 30 years. And again, the general pattern and the experimental data on predation would suggest that uh, this was due to selective predation as the major causative agent. But again, there are um, features which would seem to um, require further examination of, on the one hand, the possibility of non-visual um, pleiotropic effects of the genes, and on the other hand, of a much higher migration rate than we at present have evidence for, in order to explain the position completely. Okay, so that's brought us up to the kind of modern era, but now, of course, we have all these wonderful genomic tools and yeah. ways of looking at the genome. How has that changed our prying into this field? Well, I, I would say the modern tools allow us, first of all, uh, to look into the genome as a study in its own right, but um, they have several very important um, features. One is that there was a single centre of origin for the melanics. Now, this has been discussed in the past. They may have cropped up in several different places. They may all have come from somewhere in the Manchester-Leeds area. And um, that is something that can be studied using, uh, using molecular methods. Um, uh, another area which is possible to study using molecular methods would be migration distance. The females are winged, but they fly as little as possible, and the males do most of the flying. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Now, since you have mitochondria in females and you have uh, a, a, um, a sex-determining uh, system, you could compare the uh, migration distance of genes in males and females and find out whether, in fact there had been movement of larvae. Uh, one of the possible ways in which migration could take place is that very young larvae, when they are hatched, move around, produce silk threads, and could be blown about by the wind. So they could go very much further than the adults move. And if that were the case, then the genes which were unique to females would be carried with the larvae, Whereas if it's not the case, you'd only get uh, genes unique to females would not spread at the same rate as those which are present in both males and females. Now, that's pure speculation on my part, but it is the kind of thing which w might be accessible to study using molecular methods. So the story of the famous peppered moth is by no means finished. I think the story is essentially that it is the result of rapid change due to selective predation. But there are other features, and these other features are certainly worth um, understanding, simply from the point of view of getting a proper idea of how evolution takes place. That was Lawrence Cook. Next up, I spoke with Elix Akiri, based at the University of Liverpool in the Institute of Integrative Biology. He and his team have taken some of the first steps into studying this iconic species' genetics by creating a linkage map, shedding light on the location of the fabled melanism switch and learning some broader lessons about the overall nature of the peppered moth genome. Here he is. For pretty much most of those 150 years, the uh, observations were based entirely on the whole organisms, that is to say the phenotype, the external appearance, of the organism. So crosses had been established from uh, the early days to uh, determine the pattern of inheritance of this trait and it was established rather early on that it was inherited as a single Mendelian locus but the identity of that locus was totally obscure and so what uh, my group has done over the past few years is to try and identify the uh, location and the identity of this locus and now we are hopefully moving towards an understanding of how the developmental switch that causes the switch between the wild type light colored form and the uh, melanic black form how the cascade 
of uh, developmental genes actually operates. Okay, so to get a, a better sort of handle on what's going on with the genetics, you, you tried to construct a, a fairly comprehensive linkage map. Can you tell me what that is, first of all? Okay, so we have here an organism whose genome we know nothing about. We don't know how many chromosomes even it has until we did this study. And the objective of this study was, in the first instance, to actually try to localize to a particular chromosome where the locus controlling the melanism trait actually resides. And so the first thing we did was to actually determine how many chromosomes there are in this organism using traditional cytogenetic methods. Um, and it turns out that there's 31 chromosomes. And um, we've then bred a family. We've crossed a typical female. So typical is recessive to melanism, or in the, we call it the carbonaria phenotype. So what we did, we, we crossed a heterozygous melanic male to a homozygous typical female and produced a reasonably large family from that cross of about 80 individuals, males and females. And so, uh, roughly speaking, 50% of those offspring would have been melanic and 50% would have been typical. We then used a wide diversity of genetic markers on this family, and uh, it's then possible to look at the pattern of co-inheritance of the melanism trait and this large panel, hundreds of markers, and see which markers tend to be inherited together with the melanism trait in the offspring. So the theory behind that is that if two things are very close together on a chromosome, they're more likely to be inherited together than if they were physically further apart. That's right, and in particular if they were on different chromosomes. And that's what we call linkage mapping. Now in the process of doing this, although we're primarily interested in mapping the melanism uh, locus, we also end up mapping all the chromosomes because these markers that we're using, we don't know when we start using them where they are on different chromosomes. So we just have a random set of, let's call them anonymous markers that we also used quite a number of um, genes involved in um, melanin biosynthesis and uh, we've mapped those as well. And so you get a linkage map for the whole genome. We knew already that um, we should obtain 31 linkage groups, which each of which represent a chromosome. And indeed, we obtained 31 clusters of markers, each of which represent one of the chromosomes, which match the carrier type, which we also established for this species. Did you find the melanism switch? We've identified it down to a relatively small region of the chromosome, but it turns out that there are many polymorphisms within this particular region between the melanic types and the typical, what we call a haplotype, so a series of linked polymorphisms. And so we're actually now in the process of eliminating uh, those polymorphisms as uh, false positives, let's call them, the reason why there are such close similarities between the melanic allele, if you like, and the typical alleles is that um, it would appear that the melanic mutant arose 
on originally arose on a typical background and so there are many markers that they share uh, and so we are in the process of of working our way towards the functional polymorphism but it's not straightforward because there are no very obvious genes in this region so you're not sure quite which chromosome you found this switch on we are within the context of the peppered moth we call it linkage group 17 and because we have mapped many genes on this chromosome, we can also figure out the equivalent chromosome in the silkworm, which is the uh, reference genome for Lepidoptera. And so our chromosome 17 is the same as the silkworm chromosome 17. It's just that you can't necessarily go to another species and it won't necessarily be called chromosome 17. Right, and that, I think, highlights quite an interesting general principle about Lepidoptera and genomics, which is that whilst they, they have quite a lot of conservation in their gene content, they're, they're really highly variable, aren't they, in terms of their chromosome Chromosome numbering. numbers, that's right. This is something uh, of a uh, paradox, if you like, that um, they are characterised by relatively large numbers of quite small chromosomes in contrast, for example, uh, to Drosophila that has essentially three large chromosomes. So in contrast, Lepidoptera have many chromosomes which would suggest that the chromosomes break up quite a lot. Um, but on the other hand, the groups of genes that we find on the chromosomes across very deep evolutionary time are very strongly conserved. So if we look at um, linkage groups in two very different uh, Lepidoptera, we find the same genes are clustered together, uh, which implies obviously that there's some uh, mechanism conserving that clustering. So if you had a magic wand then, what would your next peppered moth experiment be? Well, as I said, we are trying to um, work our way down to the specific functional polymorphism, whether this might be a single nucleotide difference or whether it might be an insertion or deletion. Once we've identified that all the melanic individuals have a particular sequence variant and that that sequence variant is absent from all the typicals um, that we can assay. That's uh, an association, but nowadays, we, um, in the age of developmental genetics, we often need a more positive test of its function, and so that can only really be achieved by uh, some kind of a direct genetic manipulation. So, for example, inserting that um, variant into a typical embryo and seeing whether that causes a change in the adult phenotype of that particular individual. But at the moment, we are quite a long way from being able to do that in Lepidoptera in general, and certainly um, the peppered moth is not the kind of species that lends itself to that type of manipulation. That was Elix Akiri from the University of Liverpool. 
And I'm afraid that's it for this year. Assuming the Mayans fumbled their dates, I'll see you all in January for another episode of the Heredity Podcast. Happy holidays. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.